The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. been studying the topic of prayer, God-centered prayer, prayer that is mindful of all that God is and directed to Him in all that we know about Him. We've considered a variety of subjects, and I was starting last time to talk about adoration of God as the beginning of prayer. Today we look at another aspect of confession before God as a second aspect to consider. We've just sung the entirety of the 51st Psalm, which is the, certainly the greatest and most complete biblical prayer of confession. I'm going to bring alongside it another, also by David, and related probably in terms of the incident it refers to in David's life, the 32nd Psalm. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of that psalm, and 1 through 5 is particularly our concern. Psalm 32, 1 through 7. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the word of God. I ask you to suppose that uh, you have a six-year-old son. I choose that age because it seems like about the prime meridian of mischievousness and possibly uh, disobedience of parental instructions? Maybe not. Suppose your six-year-old son disobeys your specific request that he should keep himself clean, not get his hands and feet dirty and face dirty, because he has one hour before joining the family at a dinner that mom has prepared with company coming, and she wants her son presentable. But ignoring instructions, as six-year-olds are known to do, he runs outside and immediately gets himself plastered with mud and his feet dirty and his clothes dirty. When he comes back in across the kitchen floor, tracking slime all over the place, I want to ask you, what is going to happen? What do you think will happen? 
Well, you say, okay, son, it really doesn't matter that there's mud running off your hands and your face and dripping from your shoes. Just come join us and have dinner. You probably won't say that, especially if company is present. Your son needs some remedial cleanup, at least washing of hands and face and shoes changed and clothes changed. But what I assume you would not do to that six-year-old is say, Son, I cannot believe what you have done. And by disobeying me and getting dirty and expecting to have dinner with us, you have forfeited your rights to be a son in this family any longer. Go from our presence. You are not welcome. I hope dearly that there's no one among us who would address a child in that way. Your son needs something. He needs cleaning up. He needs different clothes. He probably needs some remedial punishment to remind him of how good it is to obey mom and dad. But he has not been lost from the family. And that, I think, is a reasonable comparison to where we are with our daily need of confession to our God of known sin, of things that we are aware of that are aggravated in our conscience, that won't leave our mind, that rob our joy in God's presence. We are still children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Once we belong to Him, once we have that great act of justification and adoption to the Father in Christ, that is permanent. We don't drop out of the family because of sin and disobedience. But we do need cleansing. We do need confession and forgiveness. Proverbs 28:13 speaks to the Christian as well as the non-believer when it says he who conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Last week in these messages that are on the subject of God-centered prayer, I put before you the common little acrostic that has been known to Christians and discussed for many decades, the letters A-C-T-S, very easy to remember, that prayer should have as constituent elements adoration of God, confession of sin, thanksgiving, and supplication. And we are so prone to spell prayer S. That's it. We come to God with our lists and our demands and our priorities and say, give me, give me, give me. We do not adore, we do not confess, and we do not thank. We're going to work through these things. I'll be not with you the next two Sundays, but we'll come back to thanksgiving and supplication to consider these elements or foundation stones of biblical prayer. We, as I said, sang Psalm 51. That was David's cry of repentance on that great occasion because of his adultery and his conspiracy that connived to have Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, put in the front line of battle where he was killed. And when he was brought to awareness and realization of that, we know the biblical story of how There was almost a volcano that erupted and brought us Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, not according to my finally waking up to my sin, according to your love, O God, your compassion, 
have mercy. Blot out my transgression. Wash my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51 is such a great statement of confession. should be read alongside 32. We believe Psalm 32 refers to the same sin, but quite possibly was written a little bit later after perhaps some more calm reflection about the whole thing, and particularly thinking about what it was like in that period of time when David thought he was getting away with something or, or simply did not yet confess. Psalm 32 was known to be a favorite as well of St. Augustine in the early Middle Ages. Augustine wrote about this psalm, a summary statement that I think gives us maybe our theme today. He said, the beginning of all useful knowledge is to know yourself as a sinner. The beginning of all useful knowledge is to know yourself as a sinner. You start there and you build by the grace of God on what the gospel brings to to make known. Well, first of all, today I want to talk to you about how this beginning of this Psalm 32 pictures the trauma of confession. There's trauma involved. There's there's a critical uh, facing of ourselves here that's not easy. We don't spend more time confessing sin to the Lord because it's painful. It's not fun. It requires a costly self-discovery and an embarrassing kind of exposure. Psychologists tell us that it's an almost universal dream that human beings have. And, you know, you can nod to yourself if you have had the dream of something going on and all of a sudden you realize you're in the midst of a crowd of people and you don't have any clothes on. Wow, that's not a place where you want to stay. And you feel like you can hardly run fast enough to flee from that condition. Well, costly self-discovery and embarrassing exposure is necessary and is a prerequisite for acknowledging sin to God. I've also heard the psychology community say that it's true that overweight people tend to not really look in mirrors. If you have an obesity problem, maybe you understand this pretty well. You know, yeah, you look to see if your hair is in place or whatever, but you don't really stand back and study yourself in a mirror because it's hard to see what you see and you don't want to see it. That's how it is when we look at our lives and need to discover something that we can almost look right past and pretend that it's not the way it really is. Psalm 32, 1 and 2 uses three different terms for sin here. It took three words to say what sin is. Transgression, which means a departure, a going away from God. The second word, sin, which means falling short of the mark, that's the archery word. You shoot at the target and your arrow goes off to the side somewhere. And the third word is iniquity, meaning corruption or decay. And we believe David is saying sin is a combination of all these three aspects, leaving God, departing in another direction, traveling to a far country, away from your real home, falling short of eternal standards, breaking God's law, missing the target, and also corruption or iniquity that is like your auto body 
rusting out. I used to, you know that I spent a lot of time in, in the city of Buffalo as a youngster and uh, early days of the 70s you would buy rust proofing for your cars which was mostly a racket I'm convinced to charge you $100 to spray some liquid under your car that didn't did absolutely nothing and uh, we can remember having cars that when we had it for six or seven years the doors would shut and we would hear <coughs> the rust falling down inside the door as they rusted out sin does that it corrodes us from the inside one commentator wrote on this passage he said you have not understood the gravity of what you think are trivial wrongs in your life if you only think of it as an act against the rule book of nature or a fellow creature whom you have slightly wronged. He said, you have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness of your soul until you actually see yourself in daily rebellion against God Most High. Is that how you see yourself? Oh, you say, that sounds dark. That sounds really serious. Well, it is really serious. A quote from one of my favorite people in church history, Jonathan Edwards. Edwards' character was very strong and very godly and matched what he preached. He wasn't a hypocritical man at all. And he was admired by those who knew the gospel for the way he lived in accordance with what he preached. And once a lady had come up to Edwards and was praising him and just pouring out gushing praise. Oh, Reverend Edwards, you are the most saintly man. You are so godly. And when I hear you preach, I think you're an angel. And he stopped her. Stop, madam. Edwards said, if you had any idea of the foul sewer that is my heart, you would not speak this way. Jonathan Edwards was someone who knew that even as a very godly man and minister, he was in daily rebellion against God himself. And when we come to face this, it it can cause us to almost become unglued a little bit. What we're doing when we acknowledge sin to the Lord, if you look at the roots of the word to acknowledge there, the Hebrew word, It's a word, the word confess or acknowledge is a word that means to say the same thing. In other words, to say what God says. What does God call these problems in my heart and my life? He calls them rebellion. He calls them disobedience. He calls them breaking my law. He calls them iniquity, transgression. He's got more than one word for them. Do we call them the same things that God calls them? To confess to him is to say about our behavior and our thoughts and our attitudes what God says. Now, you see, our culture is against this. They say, well, you don't have to listen to that conservative talk about the Bible because he's assuming that everybody's innately sinful. And our culture says people aren't sinful. People are basically good. All they need is to have their self-esteem bolstered. Well, I will say to you that is absolutely 180 degrees opposite of what the Bible says. We are born in sin. That doesn't mean, as some had foolishly said in time past, that the sexual act of producing children is a sinful act. No, but it means that from the moment of our birth in this world, we are already on a course to act sinfully 
towards God. And, you know, check it out. I mean, these little guys we baptized this morning looked wonderful. Can you imagine them being sinners? Uh, They're on the way. Uh, Family, here comes one of them, as a matter of fact. They're, They're on their way towards sinful actions, just like all of us. And small children are very good at sinning. They're very good at lying to us outright. Oh, no, Mom, I didn't do that. When they know what they did. Confession is an act of brutal honesty. We are telling God, hey, Lord, my attitude towards that difficult neighbor, that guy is so hard to love, is full of bitterness and hatred. I'm filled up with it, Lord. Help me. I confess it. Or saying, Father, what I spoke to my wife this morning wasn't just an exaggeration. It was an outright lie. Or, Lord, help my selfishness and my pride. I call it what you call it. One man was confronted by his pastor about some pretty miserable behavior as a husband in his marriage and things that really to almost anybody who watched this marriage would say, oh my goodness, what are you doing? But his reaction to the pastor was to say, pastor, I won't take advice from you because if you really knew what you were talking about, you would have straightened my wife out before you came to me. Well, you see, there's a man who's completely blind. Everything is someone else's fault. Everything can have the blame shifted over to somebody else. To acknowledge sin is to own it, to stop shifting blame. David stripped off all excuses here, looked inside himself, looked hard, and said, that monster staring back out of a spiritual mirror is ugly. But I'm going to describe him the way God must describe him and acknowledge that that's me. I heard of a college girl who came to a campus pastor, and he told me that she exactly asked him this question, why do I feel so guilty about sleeping with my boyfriend? And she followed it immediately with the question, how can I shake off these bad feelings? In other words, how can I keep on doing what I know God doesn't want me to do but feel good about it? And the pastor said, you feel guilty because you are guilty. Your guilt is like the warning signal of a smoke detector in a house with smoke and fire beginning to fill the house. And they're hard to ignore because there's a real source behind them, your sin before God. When we do not confess things that are offensive to the Lord in our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes, it's like we have an infection in our blood or gangrene beginning in a wound. David describes the spiritual side of it here when verses 3 and 4 when he says, when I kept silent, when I would not confess, I would not acknowledge, my bones wasted away through my groaning night and day. Day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You cannot expect the peace of God when you will not acknowledge what God can see in your life. It's like having living next to a you know, nuclear power station dump or something, and you've got toxic leakage into your water system. And you are not acknowledging, and therefore you're having all kinds of related problems. Maybe you're depressed, you're anxious, your relationships have 
gone bad, you've got high blood pressure, things just aren't working out with you in a lot of ways. We eventually learn this, ladies and gentlemen, while it may be painful to make honest confession before the Lord, to name it as God names it, it really is more unpleasant not to do so over the long haul of life. Well, what's the solution? It's really an easy thing here in Psalm 32, so easy that it just sounds like it's too easy. The radical basis of cleansing of sin is given here. David said, I acknowledged. I called it what God called it. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up, and you forgave. Simple, easy, automatic. I acknowledged God forgave. We can say here that this verse in the psalm is the Old Testament equivalent of 1 John 1.19, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't have a long list of procedures that you have to go through. If we confess, God is faithful. God will do what he's promised to do. He is just and he will forgive. The interesting thing is that while there were three words for sin in the early part of this psalm, there are three words also for what God does. The first is the word forgiven, which basically means a load lifted off. If you're a person who reads the the great fictional Christian book, the allegory called Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, maybe you remember Pilgrim coming finally to the cross of Jesus after a long, arduous journey with a heavy pack or burden on his back. And as he came to the cross, we read Bunyan's words, the burden was loosed from Pilgrim's shoulders and fell from his back. It tumbled down and down a hill until it fell into the mouth of a grave and was seen no more. You forgave the guilt that I was able to describe. Psalm 103 says God lifts our sins and places it as far as the east is from the west. You won't see it again. The hymn writer said, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not part of it, all of it, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Sin is lifted. Its second word for it here is that it is covered. We think this alludes to what happened in Israel on the high day of atonement in either the tabernacle or the temple when the priest went in and sprinkled blood upon the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, what was there? Many of you could tell me. The tablets of the law, the law which had been violated and broken. Blood was sprinkled on top of the Ark symbolically saying that sacrificial blood covered, covered the broken law of God. The third term here for what God does is that he does not count sin against us. This is divine bookkeeping. You've heard this from Romans chapter 4 where Paul said Abraham believed God and his faith was counted for righteousness. I know next to nothing about accounting, a subject I'm totally ignorant of. How glad I am that we have people wonderfully skilled in it around here. But I do know that that if you have a debt, 
you have to have an asset to count against the debt, and they've got to be equal or the debt is somehow not removed. And what we're told the gospel does is that the debt of our sin is entered into the ledger side of Jesus Christ, and the credit of Jesus Christ is entered into my side, and I no longer have a debt because Christ covered it. He atoned for it. He paid it. He ransomed it. He redeemed it. All those are biblical words. God's divine bookkeeping responds to our confession, and the ledger is changed. I hope you know something about the blessedness of that, and you can put trust in that. We don't need to be saved or justified over and over and over again. We are justified once by God's grace as we trust Jesus as Lord. But we do need cleansing daily, a reckoning of accounts daily, comparable to that little boy who still belonged to the family. He still belonged at the table, but he wasn't ready to sit down and have all the pleasures of of fellowship there until he got cleaned up. The Lord expects us to get cleaned up on a regular basis. You remember perhaps John 13 when Jesus washed his disciples' feet at that Last Supper. And Peter at first saw this happening and thought, what is this? I won't let him do this. He's, he's too high. He's too worthy. Lord, you won't wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And Peter, wonderful heart that he was, turned around 180 degrees and said, all right, Lord, let me have the whole bath right now. And Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. He's completely clean already, and you are clean, Peter. That's what God would say to a disciple of Jesus. You're already clean. Salvation in Christ has changed your standing with God, but you need confession of sin as the daily foot washing, if you will, of the Christian life. How much do I have to bring? How specific do I have to be? What if I forget to confess something? Well, we'll never, any of us, remember everything that could be or maybe even should be confessed. But what comes most to your mind? What walks around with you in the guilty part of your brain? What perhaps keeps you awake some night when you just can't quite settle a a matter that's all tangled up involving someone else. If the memory nags at you, if the guilt hangs on like a leech sucking your blood, you need to confess it. You need to call it what it is before the Lord and tell him you are truly sorry and ask for his forgiveness. We believe because confession is an essential part of prayer and because it comes, just think of the ordering here. Adoration is first. You lift God up. You name God all the high names that the Bible calls him. So you, you begin prayer with, with a high concept of God. What do you do immediately after that when your eyes are looking to the heavens, so to speak? You look at yourself and say, wow, what a distance between myself and God. And here's some very specific reasons why that distance exists. We put, as you know, in our bulletin, we've done this for a lot of years now, a weekly prayer of confession. And you might say to me, sometimes people will say, well, 
you know, I, sometimes I identify with the wording of that and sometimes I don't, and that's okay. I, that's probably quite understandable. But the point is we're trying to condition you to understand that confession is an essential part of your approach to God. And maybe the words that don't apply so specifically to you will at least launch you towards words on your own time that are more suited. I saw an interview with a nationally known megachurch pastor. He would be regarded by many as an evangelical. Uh, I'm not his judge. But I couldn't get around a statement in his interview when he said to the interviewer, I rarely use the word sin anymore. He said, most people already know how badly out of whack they are. They just want me to tell them what to do to get better. Ooh, that's treading on some pretty dangerous theological ice. I will not apologize for using the word sin from this pulpit. If you find it too constant, maybe it's your own conscience telling you something. Thank God that David did not think that way when he wrote Psalm 32. He said, I was knocked out by my sin. It wouldn't leave me alone day or night. It was like cancer in my bones until I unburdened myself before God and called it what God would call it. How can we do any less than this which David so ably exemplified for us. Psalm 32 anticipates that our radical fall from God would eventually send Jesus Christ to a cruel cross in order to atone for our sin. S-I-N. There's the word. We need a drastic forgiveness that only the costly grace of God can provide. I think of the way Jesus began his public ministry and John the Baptist, his cousin, saw him coming and pointed to him, to the crowd. They didn't understand what what was being said, but John said on that occasion, Behold the Lamb of God who does what? Takes away the sin of the world. I point you to the sin taker awayer. There's no such word. But to Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. The cry God longs to hear from you sincerely before him, and he needs to hear it often. Is God be merciful to me, a sinner? This kind of sinner, this particular variety of sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake. And I firmly believe, folks, that until we sincerely ask the Father for that critical need that we all have, we actually have no right at all to ask him for anything else. That comes first. Father, help us, teach us, particularize sin in our minds, not just a dark shape in the corner of the closet, but a particular action that we took, an argument that we had, sharp words that arose from us, lustful thoughts, all the many things that we know are displeasing. Let us name them what you name them and give you our sincere regrets. And Lord, we know that we'll be back again another day 
perhaps for the same thing. But nevertheless, we need our hands and our faces and our feet washed day by day as we seek to walk as your sinful disciples. Thank you for the cleansing grace of the cross that tells us every single thing we would bring, no matter how horrendous it is, if we would name it before you and sincerely despise it before you, you will forgive. Thank you. For Jesus' sake, amen.